0: The book of Revelation vividly describes two witnesses that will testify and prophesy of the truth in the end times. These witnesses are martyred, but then later resurrected. The question is, are these witnesses literally two people that will testify in Jerusalem, or is this describing a more broader, important spiritual reality that we need to be aware of? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host on this beautiful day that the Lord has made. Jesus is the truth, the gospel is the way to be saved, and he is coming back very soon. So I hope that this episode finds you well, regardless of what's happening in your life. Remember that he gives us the peace that is beyond understanding and he has overcome the world. So today we're talking about end times related things. If this is your first episode, then please go listen and check out the previous ones. There's a lot of um, nice, rich material that you can go through. We are jumping into the book of Daniel. We've actually been jumping through the book of Daniel and Revelation. Today is actually the book of Revelation, and we were continuing the themes that we see in both the book of Revelation and in Daniel, because if you remember, you can't read Revelation unless you read the book of Daniel. They both build off of one each other. Really, I mean, the book of Revelation builds off the book of Daniel because it was written after the book of Daniel, but they they have a lot of relating themes together. And so today we are continuing on the, the path that we've been going on. The last couple of episodes, we looked at the 70 weeks prophecy, and that taught us that Bible prophecy, when it comes to times and time lengths, uses the day-to-year principle. So 70 weeks prophecy is actually 490 years. And there's a good reason for that, so go check out that episode because the Bible is very consistent with these prophecies. But the important thing that we learn from that is that all the prophecies in Daniel are day-to-year principle because the 70 weeks prophecy is part of a larger prophecy, the 2300-year prophecy. And that also contains periods of 1260 years or days, prophetic days, which are a year, which is reflected in the book of Revelation. And so now when we're going to be talking about the two witnesses, which is in this episode, there's a time prophecy that is tied to this idea of the two witnesses. It's a time prophecy of 1260 prophetic days. But again, if we read the book of Daniel, if we see all the parallels, we really understand this as 1260 years. So, we looked at the 70 weeks prophecy. We we looked at Other things like the abomination of desolation, we looked at the daily, all these things in the book of Daniel are pointing to this general idea that there's going to be a persecuting power that rises out of the Roman Empire. It's going to have power over the saints, it's going to trot over the saints, it's going to make the gospel, which is represented by the sanctuary, remember the sanctuary, cease to have a purpose after the temple was destroyed. In fact, I mean, it ceased to have a t- purpose after Christ was crucified. But for sure, there was no more sanctuary once the temple was destroyed. And so ultimately, Daniel's prophecy of the sanctuary being cleansed and trodden underfoot for 2,300 years, it's obviously not talking about the physical temple. And it's not talking about the sanctuary in heaven because nobody's trotting that sanctuary. And, and prophecies have to do with things that happen on the earth not in heaven. All the prophecies are about what happens on earth. So the only conclusion is that that sanctuary, which was indeed a plan, a physical reality that was an example, or I should say a foreshadowing, of the plan of salvation, that's really representing the plan of salvation, the gospel being trodden underfoot. And we looked at how that happened. We looked at the abomination of desolation, how the power that came out of Rome, which is the papacy, trotted the gospel for 1,260 years. We didn't look exactly at the time. We'll do that in the future. But it was 1,260 years from 538 AD to 1798. And these times will become more and more clear and evident to you. You don't have to memorize them or even remember them so much. But they will become more evident to you as we get deeper and deeper into history in the next couple of episodes. In this episode, we see this 1,260 number yet again, and it's reflected in the two witnesses. So the two witnesses are in Revelation 11, and it again, it's another thing that points us to the truth if we are consistent in our interpretation. Dispensationalism reads this chapter as two literal people that will come in Jerusalem, because again, remember, dispensationalism, all the eyes are on Israel. We've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in the last 15 hours or whatever it's been of the last episodes of this entire series, the dispensationalism is a lie for several reasons. Not only is it totally out of sync with Scripture, but its origins are in the Counter-Reformation. All the Reformers, when everybody got back to the Bible, everybody got back to Saved by Grace, Saved by Faith, Scripture alone, Christ alone, all these principles of good faith, When that happened, all the reformers universally saw that the papacy was the persecuting power of Daniel and of Revelation. That was the Antichrist power. And so that's a problem. So the Counter-Reformation was created, and along with that were the Jesuits, which we will get into very deeply in the next episode as we talk about the French Revolution, the art of war, and what happened there that's so significant for us in the end times that a lot of people don't understand because, again, they don't look at Bible prophecy historically. And that's the point. Do you get it? That's the point. That's the point of the whole counter-reformation, that you do not see what happened in history, but rather look at the dangling carrot of Israel, 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 and what's happening in this tiny slice of land in the Middle East, when, in fact, Israel has ceased to be the chosen people a very long time ago. But if they could put your eyes there, you're not going to notice all the sneaky, snaky things that are being done by the papacy, by the Jesuits in the background to unify the world into one government, into one religious system. All these things are coming, people. They're coming, and they're very obvious if you have eyes to see. But if you are spellbound, let's put it that way, if you're spellbound and looking at Israel, thinking that's where Bible prophecy is unfolding which most of people are, unfortunately, then you will not see it coming, unfortunately. But we saw many errors of dispensationalism throughout this series, and in this episode we're going to see yet another error, because dispensationalism reads this as two literal people, when in actuality the the two witnesses stand for something much more profound and much more interesting, frankly, as we'll soon see. It's a spiritual reality, it's not a physical, literal (laughs) reality, because again, the time period is 1260 days, and we'll look into that, but it's really prophetic days, which are years, so it can't possibly be two literal people. That's first and foremost. Um, But we also saw, again, who created dispensationalism, and that should alone tell you why this whole understanding of biblical events is false. Because everything the dispensationalism does is it does takes your attention off of the true Antichrist power on the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. It takes your attention off the true Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy, the Vatican. The Pope sits enthroned between the cherubim and claims himself to be the vicar of Christ, the person in, in between you and God. The one who can forgive sins, the one who's infallible. I mean, that's the one who's stood in the temple and proclaimed himself to be God. And that happened by the papacy throughout all this time, and it's still happening. So these things have already been fulfilled. The abomination of desolation, the daily that we looked at points to the same thing. And again, if you study history, if you study the original language, if you and it's not like we're talking a very deep study, but you do have to study these things to get an idea of the truth. Otherwise, if you just take people's word on it, you get easily distracted because the world is controlled by the antichrist power and of course if you listen to the world you will get false theology and false advice but moving on the the two witnesses is this chapter and we're going to we're going to read through the whole thing and then we're going to go verse by verse so it's found in revelation 11 and it's it's a key end times prophetic text it's part of our end times prophetic timeline And we'll look at the timeline a little bit later in this episode. Remember, I created a nice little graphical timeline that you can use. You can download for free. It's a Google sheet, I believe. You can look at all the different prophecies, how they're laid out historically, and how they all align. Because once you see all these things connected, it is very clear that they're all part of this streaming history that is throughout time. Because God's... God's intent, I believe, and it's very clear if you look at how history has fulfilled these things, God's intent is that every generation can benefit from Bible prophecy. It's not just for the people in the past, which the preterists believe, or for people at the very, 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 very end, meaning in the future, which is what the futurists believe, which dispensationalism is a futurist eschatology. Bible prophecy, when you read it historically... That's the truth, and you see it fulfilled historically throughout time so that people always knew where they were in the slice of time and in the unfolding of God's plan. And I think that's the truth, and it's very obvious when we look at history that it is the truth. Again, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy to the year exactly fits within history, from 457 B.C., from the decree of Artaxerxes, to 34 A.D., When Stephen was stoned, that's 490 years exactly. Jesus' ministry began in 27 AD. That was the last week. Halfway through the week, 31 AD, he was crucified. 34 AD, when Stephen was stoned, the gospel went to the nations. The chosen people were no longer the chosen people because everybody is the new Israel of God. But we talked about all these things, so go check them out. If this is your first time, or if you missed those episodes, go check them out. They're really rich in information, and hopefully they'll be a blessing for you. But a lot of the stuff that I talk about is based on all these previous things. So without having to do too much review every time, uh, you know, I basically just go and check them out because they're great resources. But let's read the two witnesses, and this is in Revelation 11. So we're just going to read the whole thing. Again, this is in Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Pay attention to all this. We'll we'll come back to it line by line, but just kind of let it sink in. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, that arise from, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now in the KJV, this verse 8 that I just read is, says, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street in, in that great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt so that's an important distinction cuz i think that may be a little more clear but verse 9 for the for three and a half days some from the peoples and the some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from the heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then it starts with the seventh trumpet, which the seventh trumpet, we'll get into the trumpets, the seals, the bowl judgments, all these things in future episodes. But the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal, the the final set of all of those judgments align with the arrival of Christ. So basically, this is kind of going... Big picture, it's it's showing there's a time period happening where something is happening. They're, they're getting, the word is, the Jerusalem, the believers, spiritual Jerusalem is getting trampled. The Holy City is getting trampled underfoot. We've heard that before, so that shouldn't come as a surprise. Remember that from Daniel, the abomination of desolation, the little horn power. So these things are all consistent. The People of God are getting trampled. And while that's happening, the 42 months, the 1260 days, same time period, While that's happening, you have these two witnesses who are prophesying and basically testifying to the truth. So it's portraying this this reality that's happening over a large period of time. And then it goes again to to the final moment, which is the seventh trumpet. So really big picture. But I want you to consider a few things. So futurist interpretation of this, again, like dispensationalism, but there's other futurist eschatologies that aren't like dispensationalism in, in the sense of how, what they believe about Israel, but they still believe in this literal way of reading the Bible, that there's going to be a literal Antichrist that steps into a physical temple that the Jews rebuild and you know stops the sacrifices. All these things that are just totally twisted understandings of the messianic prophecy of Jesus stopping the sacrifices and of the little horn stepping into the temple of God, which again, remember, we had a whole episode on the temple. The temple is not a physical reality. The temple is a spiritual reality. All the apostles believed that. Even Jesus testified that. The body of Christ is the temple, is the kingdom, is the Lord's table, is all these things. It's all the same spiritual reality, which is the communion we have with God through, through Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, then when you when you see things like the temple in a Bible prophecy. That should perk up your ears because none of the apostles, including John, believe that the temple was a physical thing. But you can receive a vision of a physical temple that represents a spiritual reality. And this is where dispensationalism and futurism really get hung up because they read everything through physical, fleshly eyes. So the futurist interpretation is that these two witnesses will come in Jerusalem. And, you know, basically for for three and a half years, they're going to testify, and then they're going to be killed, and then they're going to be resurrected. So there's going to be some sort of supernatural event that happens physically with two people. Then you have the historical interpretation, which is looking at, again, because it relies on the day-to-year principle, which we more than justified in previous episodes, it's a biblical way of understanding Bible prophecy. It's, it's legitimate, and it's obviously confirmed by history. So the historical understanding of this is that there's a symbolic meaning to these two witnesses. They, they symbolize something. And again, the period is 1,260 years, so it couldn't possibly be two literal people in Jerusalem. People don't live that long, so it has to be something else. So if dispensationalism is wrong... And the two witnesses are symbolic for something. The question is, what are they symbolic for? I want you to consider a few things. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, we also know when Jesus had his transfiguration on the mount, that the apostles had a vision of Moses and Elijah. And this is a very important episode in Jesus' ministry because this vision was about confirming who he was. Just like at the baptism where the heavens opened up and you had the Trinity, you had the Holy Spirit come down, you had the Father speaking from heaven. It was a rare event. There's only a few times in his ministry where this happened. There's three, I believe. And the baptism was one. The transfiguration was another, where the heavens opened up. And again, we hear this confirmation that the father confirms he's witnessing about his son. And we also have this vision that the apostles received of Elijah and Moses. Now, some people, again, read this literally and say, oh, well, you know, it was actually Elijah and Moses that showed up. And they were physically there. But in reality, this was actually a vision. This was a vision that the apostles saw. And there's a reason for the vision. It wasn't There's a reason for Elijah and Moses, and it wasn't anybody like Ezekiel or who, I mean, it could have been Ezekiel because Ezekiel is a prophet, but Elijah represented the prophets. And Moses represents the law. And what we just heard in John 5, verse 39, is that the scriptures, meaning the law and the prophets, that was what the scriptures were, they testify about who Jesus is. All of Scripture testifies about who Jesus is. So the law, which is what Moses brought and wrote, and the prophets, which is symbolized by Elijah in this case, testifies to who Jesus is, right? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is God in the flesh coming to redeem mankind. And so how do we know it's a vision? Well, in Matthew 17 we can take a look, and it's very clear because Christ himself tells us. Verse 5, this is about the transfiguration. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So tell nobody the vision. It was a vision. It was symbolic. Just like John had a vision and wrote it down in the book of Revelation, or visions, i should say, because there's really multiple visions there. But either way, it's a vision. And in visions, we have symbolic realities. We have things that are physical, that represent greater spiritual truths. Elijah represented the law, or sorry, the prophets, and Moses represented the law. The law and the prophets testify of who Jesus is. You also had the Father testifying. So you had multiple witnesses there. Now we know from John chapter 8, verse 17 through 18, and other places, that it takes two witnesses to verify the truth. Verse 17 in John 8. In your law it is written, this is what Jesus says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now we also know the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus. And so you have Jesus, this is the beauty of the Trinity. You have Jesus, and then you have two witnesses, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that's true throughout Scripture, especially in the baptism. The dove landed on who? didn't land on John the Baptist. It landed on Jesus. And the father spoke according to Jesus, right? So you had two witnesses who were testifying to the truth in that case. Now, we know this from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that two witnesses was part of the old law, that nothing could be counted on for one witness, but you needed two witnesses at least, or three which is an interesting point. But in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we're starting to see here that this interpretation of two witnesses can mean more than just something physical. It's not two people that are going to be in Jerusalem. It is testifying to a greater spiritual truth. Because again, first off, first and foremost, the time prophecy aspect of it is 1260 years. So it's not two literal people. Therefore, it's a spiritual reality. So then if it's a spiritual reality, well, let's look at Scripture. What does it have to say about two witnesses? What does it have to say about witnessing? Well, we know that it takes two witnesses to verify the truth, right? You have basically two or three witnesses minimum. We know that Jesus testified about himself and the Father testified about himself. That's one example where the truth is being testified by two witnesses. We also know the Father and the Holy Spirit testify about Jesus. That's also another experience or situation where there's two witnesses testifying about the truth. We also have The Transfiguration, where you have Elijah and Moses, which are representative of the law and the prophets, two witnesses, again, that testify to the truth. So what the two witnesses mean is very obvious. It's the truth. It is the gospel. It is the truth that is being, that is testifying about Jesus. And the truth encompasses the law and the prophets, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is Throughout scripture, the testimony of the Father, which is documented, it's the, it's the scriptures, it's the word of God that testifies throughout time to the truth. It's the gospel being spread out. Because again, this is in the context of other things that are happening. The Bible, especially with Bible prophecy and revelation, you have these consistent patterns where God reveals kind of the, the big bad boogeyman that's going to be persecuting everybody the little horn, the dragon, the persecuting power. And he, he kind of gives you the bad news first, but then he gives you the good news that God is going to be victorious regardless of these problems and persecutions and regardless of the evil, right? So so the, the context of this is this 1260 time period where there's a persecuting power where the saints are being trodden upon. The abomination of desolation is set up. The little horn power has taken control. All these things come together That's why you have to read them together. But during that time, the Word of God will still bear witness and will be victorious. Now, we know that the two witnesses are killed, so we'll see how that happens in history. It happened during the French Revolution because Bibles were burned and banned, and atheism and the Enlightenment basically became the new way of thinking. But then they were resurrected, and that also was fulfilled in history too. Because shortly after that, exactly three and a half years, three and a half prophetic days, that's when things started to change drastically. There were missions, Bible colleges, Bible clubs, a revival. All these things started to happen in the 1800s. And that led to a huge revival throughout the world. So it's very interesting how history verifies and validates Bible prophecy, because it really does prove that the hand of God is behind the scriptures. But if Daniel saw the little horn throwing truth truth to the ground for 1,260 years, right? He saw the abomination of desolation being set up. If John's two witnesses are similar, right, to that whole period of time, now if Daniel also had a 1,260-year period and John also had a 1,260-year period, then all of this must be talking about the same period of time. Do you see why it's so important to understand the book of Daniel? correctly. A lot of people read Revelation without ever really consulting the book of Daniel and trying to relate the two. But John was a Jew. He was a Jew that was basically in the second temple period, right around, you know, I mean, the book of Daniel, Daniel was right around the second temple when it was about to be created. But they were both from the same culture. You think John didn't know the book of Daniel? He didn't, like, I don't know if he memorized it or not, but for sure, People who were that devout, they knew their Bible. They knew their scripture. And so it has to have built upon these things. And obviously the similarities are way too similar to dismiss. And so the only conclusion that these are the same period of time, to think that they're not, is really foolish. It really is ignorant. But a lot of people do not read Daniel and understand it correctly. And that starts with the 70 weeks. The 70 weeks proves, without a shadow of a doubt, that history is fulfilled in Bible prophecy. It's not literal days that are happening, but actually days represent years. So this is not talking about two physical people that are going to be in Jerusalem and get killed and then get resurrected. It's talking about a spiritual reality of the gospel being persecuted by the Antichrist power and yet still being victorious in the end. Remember, When Satan was bound at the cross, we talked about this very early on in the series, he lost his dominion over death. He was kicked out as a principality from his heavenly place. And yes, that war in Revelation 12, that wasn't, as some people think, before time began. I'm not even going to get into that, but some people believe that that war in Revelation 12 between Michael and the dragon was like before time began. And some people create all kinds of crazy... Theology around that, like the Mormons with their spirit babies idea. I'm not even going to get into that because it's a ludicrous idea. But people who believe in the pre Adamic theory, which I've debunked very thoroughly in my pre Adamic to creation uh, video episode, that's that's just nonsense. This whole idea that there was this ancient war that nobody knows about between Satan and some people pick Satan's side and so we're given a second chance. I mean, I'm, I don't even want to get into it. It's, it's just such nonsense. But that war in Revelation 12. That's what people think that they think it was some pre-cosmic war but again the bible has to do with things that happen within our timeline not in the past before the world was created it doesn't make any sense and some people think that that war in revelation 12 is a future event where that's going to happen some point in the future who knows when but in either case both of these perspectives are incorrect The war happened when Satan was kicked out and lost power spiritually because of the cross. He could no longer accuse people. He no longer had power over death. The only reason Satan had power was because there was no savior. See how that works? By having power over death, which is what he wanted, by manipulating mankind into the fall, Satan could get that worship that he always wanted indirectly, him and the fallen angels. They they created death cults. And, you know, with sacrificing people and all this afterlife stuff and praying to the dead and the underworld, all of this was Satan's own counterfeit religion of getting worship because he had power over death. There was no savior. There's nothing that could save you, right? But with Christ, we can now fear God and have faith in his word and not fear death. People used to fear, death was the biggest idol that mankind ever had. And with the cross, that idol was destroyed. And with it, Satan's power, and that's why he was bound spiritually, because the gospel was now going to move throughout the world, and people, God's plan, who he had chosen to save, people, those people were not going to be stopped from hearing the gospel. And so Satan's plan to try to have control of the world was destroyed. It was destroyed, and also with the gospel comes the judgment, because we know that God had appointed a day after the cross in the future, the final judgment where the devil would be destroyed. So that whole passing of events, throwing Satan out of his power, binding him from preventing people from hearing the gospel, knowing that he's going to be judged and destroyed, all of that basically threw the devil out of his position in the heavenly places. And so the devil came down to earth, And he knew his time was limited. And in that time, he was full of rage and persecuted the believers. He did his best, and he's doing his best, to war against the true believers. In the beginning, he did it with bloodlust and destroying people and martyring people. And slowly and slowly, it's changed into a spiritual deception because he wasn't able to prevent the gospel from spreading. So now he's changed his tactic, and we'll get into that as we continue in these episodes to see exactly how he has created his own false religion through the papacy, and how that religion will be coming to the center front, to the forefront of people's lives, and how people will worship in that religion as we get closer and closer to the last day. But today's episode is about the two witnesses. And the point about all of this is that, remember that Satan was bound and he was basically kicked out. And because of that, he came down and began this militant persecution of the church. That persecution was for 1,260 years, the same amount of time that the two witnesses, which is the Word of God, were were testifying to the truth. The Word was testifying to the truth, the gospel's being spread out. This reality of on one side, you have the, the villain, and on the other side, you have the hero. This is what this is being painted by, in Revelation, when it talks about the two witnesses and other things too. There's different chapters that you have to put them together from different perspectives. One chapter is going to talk about the persecution. The other one's going to talk about kind of the, the good news, pun intended, right, of what's happening. And you put it all together and you see this complex, dynamic his, history being played out where, despite the evil and persecution, God is victorious. And it's really, it's really, truly beautiful. So this is a spiritual reality. This is a spiritual reality. It's a long period of time, and the more we look into it, we will see just how consistent it is with everything we've looked at in the past, with the abomination of desolation, with the sanctuary being made desolate. Remember, the plan of salvation was made desolate by all the things implemented by the papacy. All their fleshly things like infant baptism and transubstantiation, praying to Mary and the saints. We'll get into all this stuff in a more detailed way and document it, but the point is, this is all consistent. So, let's do a verse-by-verse verse, verse breakdown now that we kind of get a general grasp of this and really get a deeper understanding. So, in chapter 11 of Revelation this is where the two witnesses are. And if we go to verses 1 through 3, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations that they trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So first and foremost, the temple, we have to remember the temple is what? The temple is not a physical temple that's being measured here. The temple is the body of Christ. It's the true believers. It's the church. We looked at that in great detail that all the apostles and Jesus and prophecy testifies to a spiritual reality for the temple. Now this is compared to the gentiles where you know he says rise and measure the temple of God but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for its given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So a couple of things are going on here. First, what does it mean to be measured And I'm going to say that it means to be tested because when you're measuring the people, who's being measured, the true believers are being measured. You're delineating them. You're separating them from who is not a true believer, right? How do you do that? You do that through tribulation and through testing. So measurement has to do with testing. Now, the reason reason I say that is because the Holy City is trampled for 1260 days. We know from other parts in Scripture, like Daniel, that being that trampled on, this is the persecuting power of the Antichrist that is trampling on the church, that's wearing out the saints and, and setting up the abominable of desolation. So we know that the two witnesses who were prophesying, in sackcloth, by the way, sackcloth was a sign of humility, and the gospel is very humble. It's not worldly at all. And it was persecuted, the, the Bible was banned, it was blocked, you weren't allowed to read the Bible. You, you know weren't allowed to really know the, the full gospel. You had to have obedience to the church or else you would get killed for being a heretic. But this period of time was from 538 AD when the papacy became, assumed full power legally over Rome, over Europe to 1798 when the French Revolution happened and Berthier arrested the Pope. And it seemed like the papacy had come to an end. Now, keep all this in mind. I'm not going to get super detailed into it because we will get into it a little later. But all these things tie exactly to what Revelation predicted, that the beast, the first beast, would have a mortal wound. It seemed like it would have a mortal wound, meaning it seemed like it was almost, it seemed like it was dead, but it wasn't. And that exactly happened to the papacy in 1798 which is very interesting. It's all very fascinating. But moving on, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So right away, you can't be two people physically in Jerusalem. Why? Because these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So obviously, even within this vision, the two witnesses, which are symbolic, are being compared to something else that's symbolic, two lampstands and two olive trees. And the question is, what do these things stand for? Well, remember, John is a Jew. He was part of the culture that wrote the Old Testament. He knew his scriptures. And so again, it's building off of the Old Testament. So we know from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, what these can be, a vision of the golden lampstand. Verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lampstands on it with seven lips on each of the lampstands that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and on the other and the others on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? So what are the olive trees? What are the lampstands? What are the olive trees? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, nor by my power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what are the candlesticks? What are the lampstands representative of? The representative of the word of the Lord. That's pretty clear. Now, what happened during the 1260 years when the two witnesses were prophesying? Remember, the two witnesses are testifying. It's the word of God. It's the gospel, the word of the Lord. It's all pretty consistent. That is testifying to the truth. What happened during that 1260-year period? Well, we know there were Sunday laws when the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath. The Dark Ages, it was medieval. People were getting tortured. There were crusades. There was the Inquisition. We're going to get into all of this. We're not getting into it so much today, very detailed. But in a couple episodes, when we look at mystery Babylon, the harlot, the the mother of abominations on the earth, we will get into it very deeply. That I can promise you. But the point is this, the gospel was suppressed. It was only available in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. So people in Europe couldn't really read it, especially most people were poor. And so they, they didn't have access to the word of God. It was being sequestered from it. It was being hidden by the power. It had to be copied by hand, right? So there were limited copies. Remember, this, one of the things that kicked off the Protestant Reformation was the printing press and printing Bibles. That was a huge deal. Today, we take this for granted. I mean, you can go buy a Bible anywhere. You can go to a bookstore or Amazon. And you can get multiple translations and compare them. I mean, the luxury we have. This is why we are in the seventh and final church of revelation which will be an episode specifically dedicated to this but the, the lukewarm church is the wealthiest church and that's because we are very wealthy both materially and spiritually in a sense now we aren't we don't have wealth in faith which is what jesus um, reprimands the church for but what i meant to say is we're wealthy in our spiritual resources right our spirituality is very poor compared to the first church who were martyred brutally for their faith you know today people can't even withstand tribulation because we're so comfortable in our modern lives but we have a lot of spiritual resources and people don't use them you could learn anything on the internet you can study the bible deeply with the original language you can do multiple translations i mean these things were a luxury they are a luxury but people didn't have that luxury in the period of the 1260 years where the papacy was dominating Europe and the world, people couldn't read the Bible. You had to be copied by hand. Now, during religious services, they also prohibited scripture. You know, they had scripture basically in Latin. And so sermons were in Latin, scriptures were read in Latin. Never mind that the Latin Vulgate translation was a horrible translation to begin with. It was completely twisted by the papacy, but this is the Latin that was read, and people, you either knew Latin, which if you were poor, you didn't, and you just sat there, right? We also know that the church's stance was that the common person could not understand the Bible. So if you were poor and common, well, you, you're just not going to get it. You need somebody, you need authority to tell you how to read the Bible, now, this attitude, this right here, is still alive and well in places like the Mormon Church, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Is this idea that you need to look to a higher authority other than God to give you the truth. And this, this line of thinking is extremely dangerous and very faulty. And it's really unfortunate, but this is the way people think. They think that the Pope needs to interpret it for you, or a priest needs to tell you how to interpret the Bible. Now, of course, there are people who study the Bible, very faithful people, pastors of different kinds, but ultimately, that understanding of the Bible should be between you and God and the Holy Spirit. Of course, you should study. Of course, you should see what other people have to say. Of course, you should form your opinion on an educated basis and based on what Scripture truly says. Don't let others interpret the Bible for you, but let Scripture interpret itself and always cross-reference, always do original language studies. Of course, you should be very well-versed in there. And of course, everybody has different time that they can dedicate to that. But this is about the mentality that basically, you're if you're common, you're too stupid to understand God's Word. Whereas, whereas God gave us all the ability to understand His Word through a mind, and a conscience, and a heart. And of course, even after the Bible was translated into common languages, The church forbade people to read it. This is all in history. And so we look at all these things. We look at how the Reformation printed Bibles, and people were persecuted for doing that, how Catholics suppressed the gospel, how the Word of God was in constant conflict with the institution of the church state, institution of the papacy. We start to see how this all starts to shape up into a spiritual reality. This is talking about a spiritual conflict Of the truth, which is the testimony of Jesus, which is the gospel, which is representative of two witnesses testifying to something that is true, versus the Antichrist power, the little horn, the one who put up the abomination of desolation and made the plan of salvation desolate, meaning nobody's entering through the door, because that power is putting itself between people and God and saying that it is the way to to salvation through the church. And people still believe that today. But now I want to take a look, quick look at this idea of 1260 days as a prophecy or as a time within prophecy. It's in Daniel and in Revelation. And there's a couple of places that I've highlighted where this exact number is described. And what is it describing? What is the context of those descriptions? This is something we have to pay attention to. So in Daniel 7, verse 25, it says, He shall speak words against the Most High. This is the Antichrist power, the little horn. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and the law. Keep that in mind. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years, which is 1260 days. Again, prophetic days are actually years. So this is talking about the Antichrist power who's wearing out the saints, who's speaking blasphemous things, and who's going to receive the saints to test them, to measure them, right? God is measuring people's faith through tribulation for 1,260 years. Later in Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, That it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So again, this is about the end of these wonders. Daniel has had in verse six has just asked him, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Right? How long till till these things that you've shown me, these visions, which have to do with the end times, have to do with the antichrist power, the little horn? You know, Daniel is being given basically the rest of history. Now imagine being an Old Testament Jew in the second temple period without the full revelation of the Trinity, the gospel, the plan of salvation, and you're being given the rest of history until basically the coming of Christ. I mean, that's pretty overwhelming to say the least. And so there's a lot of times when Daniel asks, like, can you give me clarity? How long is this going to happen? And we see this same answer, which is this 1,200... And sixty-day period, that is referring to a very long period in human history, which has passed, thankfully, but we're not out of the uh, woodwork yet, because there's still the worst is yet to come, in a sense. And after that, the best is yet to come. So that's the good news. But in Revelation eleven, we know from verse two and three that the holy city is going to be trampled for forty-two for forty and two months. And the two witnesses will be prophesying for 1260 days. So these things, these times are equivalent. It's Talking about the same period of time. And compare that again to what we just read in Daniel, and it's consistent. It is a consistent picture. If we look in Revelation 12, verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the woman, which represents the church, who's being persecuted by the dragon, remember the dragon was kicked out of heaven. He came down to war with the saints after that because he, he knows his time is short and he wants revenge. He wants to kill as many people as possible, prevent the gospel. What's been happening in history? Look at history. All that stuff has been happening. The woman was the true believers. They were nourished for the, for the time period that they're being persecuted. They're being, God is taking care of his people. And there's so many verses that paint this picture that even if, You're going to be martyred. You will receive the crown of life. That's what the point is. He's giving you the bad news, but he gives you the good news, which is even better and stronger. And again, it's consistent with everything we've looked at. If we look in later in uh, chapter 12 in Revelation, verse 14, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she used to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. (coughs) Okay, just had a little cough there. Sorry about that. But she's nourished for a time, times and a half a time. It's the same period as 1260 days. It's just described differently. But it's talking about the same thing. The woman's being nourished for the 1260 days. Now in Revelation 13, 5, it says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So, again, it's this beast, what does it do in verse 6? It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So, it's the same theme over and over again, again, from different angles. What happens in Daniel? It's a persecuting power that is blaspheming God and wearing out the saints, trotting on the sanctuary. What does the beast do in Revelation? Same thing. The beast, remember, beasts are systems. All the beasts in Daniel, which we will get into in a future episode, are all kingdoms and powers. Do you think then John, when he received a vision of a beast, thought it was an individual person? Absolutely not. The beast, in fact, the beast has very similar qualities to all the beasts in Daniel. It's a combination. We'll get into this in a little bit, probably in the next episode, but... For sure, as we describe the all the four beasts of Daniel and Revelation, we'll do that in a future episode. John's beast that comes out of the sea has all the qualities of the previous empires. And if you look at Papal Rome, which is the little horn, it has all the qualities of the previous empires. Rome, Greece, Persia, Babylon. And if you know your history, it's very obvious. But either way, the point is this. We have history is our guide. And 1260 years describes a period of time where there's this power, this system. The beast is a system. And it's persecuting the saints. It's trying to make the word of God null and void. It is blaspheming God. And there's so many blasphemies that the papacy has committed in its teachings, in its way that it's taught people. It's it's bringing them up in these ideas to pray to Mary, to the saints, to go to relics. This is all pagan stuff. Infant baptism. Transubstantiation is the most satanic thing I can think of. You know, the Pope, basically, who is, you know, supposedly God on earth. Pontifex Maximus is a Babylonian title. Vicarius Filii Dei, the vicar of Christ, meaning the one who is in place of Christ. All these things... There's no other power in history that fulfills the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation like the papacy. And it's very clear as we start looking at all these different perspectives, they're all talking about the same thing. Yet despite this power, the two witnesses will prevail. The gospel will prevail. The good news will prevail. It'll, it'll be trodden. It's going to be persecuted. It's even going to be killed for a time, but it's going to be resurrected because it can't be stopped. And that happened in history. Now, another important thing in Zechariah chapter four, we see with these ideas, olive trees and the anointed ones. So I want to jump back to Zechariah chapter four, verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now again, anointed ones, two witnesses, olive trees. John is building upon Old Testament imagery. And we know that previously in Zechariah, the olive trees, the lampstands were representative of the word of God. So two witnesses Two lampstands, anointed ones. These are metaphors and symbols for two witnesses, meaning there's the truth. Something is testifying to the truth. What's the truth? The truth is Jesus. It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, that you can be saved through faith in his perfect work. That's the truth. And the gospel scriptures testify to that truth because it's the word of God. It's the word of the Holy Spirit. And John is building off of this imagery. So... Again, it's just another proof that these things are symbolic, not literal, but we have to read them in context of other things. You can't just read it. If you read Revelation, and only Revelation, your mind can make up all kinds of fanciful theories on what those things mean because a vision is very symbolic. Visions are very apocalyptic. They're they're revealing truths through symbols, through physical things, right? So if we're going to be consistent, Oh, are we going to say that there's going to be a red dragon at the end of the age that's going to be flying around in the sky and chasing a woman down? Oh, no, but that's the devil and the church. Well, then, okay. Then why is it suddenly that the two witnesses are two literal people? If we don't read the red dragon, if we don't read the woman as literal, if we don't read an angel that binds the red dragon with a giant chain as literal, but rather that's a spiritual reality, do you see how all this kind of comes together? So we have to be consistent. Now in Revelation verse 11 verse 5, the next verse, it says if anybody harms them what their punishment are, if anybody would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. And we know that basically they have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain will fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this is another proof to me that's very clear that the two witnesses is talking about the word of God. Why? Because we know that these are all images of judgment. We know from the plagues on Egypt, right? That that was a lot of these are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. Uh, We know that people who will reject Christ at the end of the age, they'll be punished by being thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. So people who are going to harm the scriptures, right, people who are going to harm the scriptures are going to be judged. They're going to be judged, and the word of God is true because God has judged people in the past, and he will judge people in the future, in the lake of fire, when people are going to be thrown into it. Now, remember also from Revelation 22, verse 18 through 19, that we have a warning, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Very consistent with what we just read in verse 5, that people who harm the word of God, how do you harm the word of God? Well, you either take away from it, right? Right? or you add to it in some way. And that's certainly been the case throughout history. Nowadays, we see a lot of people adding to the Word of God and creating their own theologies, like dispensationalism. You're adding things that aren't really there because you're reading Bible prophecy literally and fleshly. But then you also have the 1260-year period where the the Word of God was desolate. Nobody was reading it. So they were taking away from... The word of God, and so the judgment that came upon the papacy during the Dark Ages. We had the Black Plague, we had the Crusades, and the, the wars with the Is- Islamic wars. You had the famines, you had all kinds of pestilences. These things marred the Dark Ages, and they were. There's a whole episode we're going to do on the trumpets because the trumpets in Revelation stand for the judgments that fell upon basically the world and the Antichrist power throughout the time that this 1260-year period was allowed for them to prosper and trod over the saints and over the sanctuary. Of course, God is going to judge them for that. And there was a lot of judgments that were given throughout that period over Rome and then over the papacy. And we'll get into those specifically. But the point is, this is a warning. You know, 11 verse 5 is a warning to that if you harm the Word of God, what happens to you? Well, you're going to be killed, you're going to be judged. Now, we're talking about people who are deliberately antichrist, okay? Not saying if you read something or you say something and you misinterpret it, that God is going to judge you. Because if you're in Christ, that's all that matters. But we're talking about people who are deliberately antichrist, organizations, powers, who are trying to destroy the word, trying to hide it, trying to add to it, trying to manipulate and deceive. This is what it's talking about. And so it's, again, another proof that this is talking about the Word of God. It's not talking about physical individuals, but rather the Word of God. Now we know from Zechariah, again, going back to Zechariah, there's a lot of stuff we can see in Zechariah. And this is in chapter 5. Some great details that really, again, support this idea that this is the Word of God throughout this period of time of persecution. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, there's a vision of a flying scroll. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. What does that mean? A scroll represents the word. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. A flying scroll represents the word of God going out throughout the world. And what's going to happen? People will be convicted. And if you reject the word of God, if your conscience persists in being stiff-necked and hard of heart, then you will be judged. That's what this is talking about. And again, it's it's same imagery that the word of God is flying. It's going throughout the world, and those who reject it will be judged. How do they are they judged? By fire, the lake of fire at the end of days, when everybody will be resurrected to the second death or to eternal life, depending on your relationship to Christ. But the word of God is going to convict everybody, and it's going throughout the world. Now, we also see later in Zechariah, in chapter 5, verse 5 through 8, we see a vision of a, a woman in a basket. We see some unclean birds, you know, some some imagery of unclean birds, some really interesting things that, again, point to the same reality. It's the same reality over and over again. So let's read Zechariah 5, verses 5 through 8. A woman in a basket, a vision of a woman in a basket. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is, go- this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. There was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So what is this a vision of? A woman is a vision first and foremost. In a vision, a woman represents the church. Now, Woman in the Old Testament was Israel, was the faithful, but a prostitute, a harlot, was an image of apostate Israel, or an apostate group of believers, All right? So they're apostate, they're in rebellion, they're no longer faithful. So in the New Testament, which we live in now, woman represents the church. Now, that's why mother of, of harlots, the mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, is a representation of the apostate church. Well, the one that's riding the beast, which is the first church, or I should say the first system, the papacy, the church and state union that Revelation 17 testifies to, that's still to come. We're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. Sounds crazy if you've never heard this, but I hope that as we go on in these episodes, it won't sound as crazy any longer and you will see the truth. That the world is moving in that direction, but nonetheless, a woman represents the church or group of believers. Now, if it's in a good context, that's faithful believers. If it's in a bad context, that's rebellious believers or, or false believers. Now, the interesting thing is in this, I was reading the ESV, and I, I believe that see in KJV it says an ephah, yeah. So we it's ESV. This is why you have to read KJV and sometimes. Bible prophecy because you won't get the full understanding of it. In the KJV, it says that an angel that talketh with me went forth and said to me, "Lift up your eyes and see what is in that is going forth." And I said, "What is it?" And he said, "This is an ephah that goeth forth." So ESV says basket to try to make it more relatable, but in in that way, it kind of loses the whole meaning of this. An ephah was a standard of measurement. It was a way that they would measure flour, and it was about 22 liters. So it was a standard of measurement. Now, inside that ephah was a woman, and that's really interesting because you have the standard that measures flour, which creates bread. Remember, bread is always representative of Jesus, of the gospel, the bread of life. So you have a standard that makes... That's for making bread. But there's a woman inside that standard that's hiding in that standard. And her name is wickedness. So there's a church that controls the standard, a new standard. And that woman was revealed, but then she was concealed again. So this is all very interesting because in the context of history, we know that the Reformation revealed the woman in the standard, that was hiding in the standard that is used to make bread. That woman was the Catholic Church. It was the papacy. The Reformation revealed that as the true Antichrist power on the earth. But then the Counter-Reformation happened. The Reformers lost steam, and they lost. And today, people think that the Antichrist is some future charming fellow that's going to walk, walk into the temple that the Jews are building. They don't realize that the Antichrist's power is right under their noses. And so it was revealed, the woman was revealed, but then she was hiding again. So that's a very interesting prophecy, again, that relates to all these things that we're talking about with the abomination of desolation, with the two witnesses, the sanctuary being trodden underfoot. foot. All these things are talking about the same thing, same power. Now, in later verses... <coughs> Excuse me, guys. My voice is just getting dry, and it just coughs for no reason. But in Zechariah chapter five, verse nine through eleven, we see again this vision. The next vision is about a stork, or women that have wings like a stork. So let's read it. Then lifted up, then I lifted I up my mind eyes. Man, that's tricky. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. This is very important. And they lifted up the ephah between earth and heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? Like, where are they taking it? And he said unto me, To build it a house in the land of Shinar. Also very interesting. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Boy, there's a lot in this one. First off, a stork was an unclean bird in the Old Testament. So women, now we know birds are a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And women who are representative of a church, right, with wings of an unclean bird, these are false spirits, false churches, false organizations lifting up the ephah and setting it down, in Shinar, in the land of Shinar. Now, most people don't realize that Shinar refers to Babylon. And again, all these things are spiritual, so what's really happening here? Well, another standard is going to reign on the earth, which is going to be secretly controlled by an apostate church, which is the woman hiding in the ephah. It's going to be revealed that it's evil and that it's controlling the standard, but then it's going to be covered up again. That happened. Now two powerful church churches, apostate churches, with they're guided by an unclean spirit, unclean spirits, will lift up and rebirth this power and rebirth Babylon. That's all really interesting, isn't it? I want you to keep in mind, we're gonna talk about this in very in-depth in future episodes, because we haven't built we haven't built the foundation yet for that. But keep in mind that there's the Catholic Church. And there's Protestant America. Keep in mind that John prophesied of the beast, the first beast, and the second beast. The first beast is a system, it's the papacy, and the second beast is also a system that acts, the second beast acts like a false prophet that creates an image and gets people to worship the first beast so both of the both of the both of the beasts are systems their political powers and their religious powers and the second beast helps to basically lift up the first beast do you see some common themes here i certainly do and i think that it's all very interesting okay revelation chapter 11 verse 7 and when they shall have finished their testimony the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and she'll overcome them and kill them. So we know that basically the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit, well, who is that? Well, when they finish this 1260-year period, we'll look at the times and dates for this in much more detail in the future. But for now, just take it on face value. The papacy was from 538 AD to 1798 as a dominating world power. Those are 1260 years exactly and that's fulfilled in history. Now, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, when does that happen? That's a good question. Now we know from later in Revelation in the woman that's riding the beast that we just talked about the great prostitute and the beast in Revelation chapter 17 that the beast is has some certain qualities. So so let's read this to get a better comparison of all this, because again, all these things have to be added together from different parts. Revelation 17, verse 1, and there, came a, and there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show you, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, if you read this literally, it makes no sense. There's no woman like that. But there is a church institution like that. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. That's an interesting description, isn't it? purple and scarlet. I wonder who fulfills that. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said to me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman And of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that soweth was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. So now we have an interesting connection. And it will go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Another proof text for predestination, by the way. When they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind with head wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, Hmm. on which the woman sitteth. Now, all of that is really interesting. First and foremost, because there's only one place in the world that has seven mountains, where a woman, as a church, sits. Do you know where that is? That's in Rome. And in fact, the only other place that comes even close is Istanbul. Istanbul also has seven hills. And Istanbul was the capital where Constantine made the unification of church and state in 321 AD. But Rome is called the City of Seven Hills. And the woman that sits on that city is the Vatican. It's the papacy. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. And she's riding a a beast with blasphemous names. And of course, as you learn to study history and as you learn to see what the institution of the Catholic Church has done... It makes more and more sense. But there's an interesting point here about the bottomless pit and the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. This union of church and state, this final beast, this woman riding the beast, which is the woman is the apostate church, and it's riding the beast. What does that mean? It's, it's a unified system. The beast represents seven heads and ten horns. That's very reminiscent of the first beast which the first beast is also reminiscent of Daniel's beast with seven heads and ten horns. It's all the same imagery, the same Roman system throughout time. Obviously, different iterations. The woman riding the beast in Revelation 17 is the final iteration. But it's the same idea. And we know that the seven mountains only correspond to Rome. Therefore, the conclusion is obvious. The woman represents the church, the beast is the political power, and the woman riding the beast is a church-state union where everybody will marvel after the beast. We're going to return to what the beast had, which is world power, and people will marvel after it because they think that the glory days of Christianity are back, the deep state's been destroyed, the evil has been Eradicated, and now the light rules, but it's actually going to be the false light of Lucifer, and that's what's coming. Now, whether that's going to be accompanied by a false Christ or just a one world religion, who knows? Either way, it's not looking good, but we do know that it is looking good in the very end because the Word of God is victorious. So, if we compare this beast that the woman is riding to Revelation 13. There's a lot of similarities. The first beast. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Pretty similar to the the beast that the woman is riding. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. That's interesting, because Daniel's beasts, which we'll get into, are a leopard, a bear, and a lion. That's all very interesting, isn't it? The leopard represents Greece, the bear represents Medo-Persia, and the lion represents Babylon. All those old empires are are in this new power that's going to basically be persecuting the saints for 1260 days. Verse 3, and I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Very interesting stuff. And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is all very fascinating when you know your history. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So this first beast has aspects of all the previous empires, which papal Rome did have. We know that it has seven heads and ten horns, which is an allusion to Rome. We'll cover this in the, when we actually break down all the beasts in Daniel and Revelation. But Daniel's fourth beast, remember there's the leopard, there's the, the bear, and there's the lion. But there's the fourth beast, which isn't mentioned necessarily in here, but it is mentioned in that it has seven heads and ten horns. This is an allusion to the fourth beast, which was Rome, which pagan Rome, which Daniel foresaw in his prophecy of the kingdoms, basically, throughout time. Now, the terrible beast, which is the fourth beast in Daniel, gives birth to a little horn power. That little horn power corresponds to this first beast of the sea that John saw, which has all the elements of Rome, Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon. Obviously, this is building off of imagery from Daniel. And this beast is the beast that people wonder after, the pe- the beast that has dominion over the earth. The, the papacy was in control of the modern world for the 1260 years that it was in control. It ruled with an iron fist, probably longer, if you think about it, than any other of those previous empires. And it's still going, it's still in control, and it will be going back to its glory days, so to speak, in the end, in the very end, for a brief period. But nevertheless, it will do that. It will succeed. That's what scripture tells us by the woman riding the beast. So the woman riding the beast is a union of the woman, the apostate church, with this system, with this totalitarian governmental system. What does the beast look like? Well, it represents Rome and the old system that the papacy had for those 1260 years papal rome so the woman is riding the beast it's gonna basically control everything again now that vision has common threads there's common threads throughout all these visions there's persecuting of the saints there's blaspheming god they are both political powers All these are political powers. The little horn, the woman riding the beast, the first beast, they're all political powers. They're all tied to certain time periods. There's a continuation. There's a sense of continuation of the ideals of the previous empires. The first beast that John saw had all these elements like Rome and Greece and and Persia and Babylon. And if you really study the Vatican and the institution of the Catholic Church and papal Rome, it's true. It's It's a pagan empire that is under the guise of Christianity. And of course, the time period of 1260 days. So how do we put all this together? Well, John's beast is a combination of all the empires in Daniel. Again, we know from Daniel 7, verse 23 through 25, that the fourth beast is Rome. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. Again, beasts are kingdoms, not people. Which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and, all sh- and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. This is the little horn power, the papal Rome power. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and laws, which the papacy has done. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and a dividing time. So again, there's that 1260-day period. All these things... Are pointing to the same reality. It's really quite fascinating how it all aligns. But you have to read these prophecies in context of one another. Daniel's little horn is the power that comes out of pagan Rome, which is the papal Rome power. It treads on the saints in the sanctuary for 1260 years. So the little horn is the papacy. John's first beast which is the continuation of all the represents the continuation of all these pagan ideals? Babylon, Greece, Rome. It's, it's, it's a mishmash of all these empires. It's the culmination of this antichrist power. John's first beast, which has the seven heads and ten horns, is papal Rome. Right? It rules for 1260 years. It it follows in the footsteps of all these previous empires and their ideals, their pagan ideals. And then you see the mystery Babylon, which is the final church-state union that comes about at the end of the age, which is the return of papal dominance for a period of time where the kings of the earth will will give their power willingly to this church-state union. And it's already happening. It is already happening, folks. Like I said, we'll get into it very deeply in future episodes, but it's already happening. The word of God was suppressed for 1260 years during papal rule. And it was killed during the French Revolution because the French Revolution was when atheism and humanism and then the Enlightenment and communism, all those things got started in the French Revolution. It's really quite fascinating how it all comes together. But the beast that was and is not and is to come, this is the beast that came out of the bottomless pit. So what what was and is not and is to come? Well, was was the papacy. Is not was the mortal Wound and is to come is meaning that final church state iteration that's going to come in the future. We're not there yet. We are moving in that direction, but it is to come. So if the two, no now putting it all together, if the two witnesses are killed by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit, what what is the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit? It's the church state union that comes out of the bottomless pit the woman riding the beast so that beast that system is the one that kills the two witnesses the word of god but we know the two witnesses were prophesying for 1260 days before they were killed meaning in 1798 when that prophecy expires which also happens to coincide put put this together now very carefully the two witnesses were killed after 1260 years. That's in 1798. That's when the mortal wound happened to the first beast because of the French Revolution. Berthier arrested <clears throat> uh, the Pope, Pope Pius VI, and basically Napoleon took control of Europe. And so it seemed like the papacy was done. That's it. It's no more longer a, a world power. So that was the mortal wound in 1798. And that's when the basically the... The 1260 year period was over, but also the two witnesses were killed because of atheism and Bible burning and books, uh, Bibles being banned for three and a half years. And then after that, they were resurrected. Like with all the things we talked about, the second great awakening happened in Protestant America throughout the world. You know, you had Bibles being going back into print. You had missions, missionaries, all kinds of things happening basically for revival, but put this all together. The beast that comes out of the bottomless pit is the one that kills the two witnesses. We know that the two witnesses were killed at at the end of the 1260-day period in 1798 because of what I just said. Therefore, 1798 is when the beast from the bottomless pit, which killed the two witnesses, that's when it arises from the bottomless pit. You see how this is starting to come together? And it's going to come together ever so much more beautifully as we go into the next episode we talk about the French Revolution and the art of war a little deeper. Because what was birthed at 1798 was a dialectic. It was a dialectic which was the beginning of this final church-state union. Now, if you don't know what a dialectic is, it's basically problem-reaction-solution. Create the problem so you can introduce your solution. That's called the dialectic. That happened in 1798 to bring the papacy back to full power. How do you do that? You create the opposite. You create something that seems like it's against religion, that seems like it's against Christianity in an obvious way. You create the dark so that the light, the false light of Lucifer, of Catholicism, of the papacy can seem so much more appealing. Communism, atheism, humanism, all these things were created in 1798 because of the French Revolution. These things stood against the traditional view of religion and certainly against nationalism and fascism and uniting the church and state. They stood against that. Communism was against those things. But this is a false duality. It was created on purpose. And when I say created, I really do mean that. The French Revolution was staged, not that it didn't happen, but it was organized by the Jesuits. It was organized by the Illuminati. It was organized by all these people that you always read about in history. and It seems that they have their hand in everything. Well, it's true, they do. And what happened was that created the beginning of this dialectic, this bouncing ping-pong table between dark and light, which is now coming to a head. Because now we have things like the Great Reset versus the Great Awakening, right? Dark versus light, dark to light, you know what that phrase is from. Uh, You know, all these different things where basically people have been pushed against globalism, the big bad boogeyman of communism. And now people want traditional family values, traditional religious values. Who's coming in to rescue everybody? I bet you know the answer, and you'll see the answer more clearly as we proceed, because we're starting to get to the meat and potatoes of this entire series. But again, I digress, because this is about the two witnesses, and really the point here is that the bot- the beast from the- comes from the bottomless pit, we can identify what that is. That began in 1798, because that's when the two witnesses were killed. So if the beast that comes from the bottomless pit is the one that kills them, that happened in 1798. That that started to come out of the bottomless pit. Now, again, don't read this literally. We're not talking about a giant hell hole that opened up and a beast came out of it through some portal. No, this is a spiritual reality. The reality that's coming, the beast, the woman riding the beast that comes from the bottomless pit, this is straight from Satan. That's the point. This is a satanic reality that's coming upon the earth. And it began in 1798 with this dialectic of, you know, communism and left versus right. And it ping-ponged through World War II, it ping-ponged through the Cold War, and now it's all coming to a head with this whole deep state versus nationalism. And you're going to see a resurgence in nationalism, you're going to see a resurgence in Christianity, but it's not going to be biblical Christianity. It's going to be institutional Christianity, and that's why you have to have discernment. So, a couple more verses here. Revelation verse uh, chapter eight, chapter 11, verse 8 through 12. The final couple verses. Let's read them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was also crucified. And they of the people and kin- kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies in three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was a great earthquake and the 10th part of the city fell, and in the earthquake there were slain men in 7,000, and the remnant were affrightened and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So we know that Egypt and Sodom were being compared to someplace spiritually. That's very important. It's another indicator that this is not to be read literally. What did Egypt stand for? Egypt stood for rebellion. Remember how Pharaoh was basically an atheist. He didn't believe that God existed. He didn't want to obey God's laws, certainly, and he was judged for it. So Egypt represents rebellion to God, resisting God. And Sodom represents, obviously, sexual immorality. Well, what do we know about the French Revolution? The French Revolution was all about liberalism, hedonism, atheism, humanism, all these things that are plaguing society today, hyper-leftist liberalism, philosophy, transsexuality, LGBTQ plus alphabet, whatever, values. These things have done away with everything that God has created, the the traditional family unit, good values, certainly the word of God and having any decency. I mean, it's just gotten crazy. It's gotten totally crazy. And that's on purpose, though. It is out in your face and out in front and center They're doing these drag shows for kids and these satanic music performances on purpose. It's all staged to get you to to get repulsed by it and to get people to move in the opposite direction, which is where the Pope and the papacy and all these seemingly good values have their arms wide open, ready to receive you back into the mother church. Do you see how these things play together? I hope you do. I really hope you do. But... Egypt and Sodom are spiritual, so the French Revolution definitely fulfilled this prophecy. And we know that France banned the Bible from 1793 to 1797, which is three and a half years exactly, and that fits in line with the period of time that the two witnesses were dead. Now, note that the word prophets in verse 10, where it says, you know, that the prophets tormented them, people were basically, because the two prophets tormented them, that dwelt on the earth— So it's saying that, you know, that people were rejoicing over these two prophets that tormented them, They're rejoicing over the dead bodies of these prophets. That doesn't mean that these, the two witnesses are individuals, and I can prove it to you because the second beast that John describes that comes from the earth, oh my goodness, sorry, I just had a cough attack there. I'm sorry about that, guys. My voice gets dry, it's still recovering, but either way, praise the Lord that I'm able to speak to you for these longer amounts of time, and and share with you these important things. But nonetheless, just because it says prophets in verse 10, doesn't mean that these two witnesses are individuals. The second beast that John talks about coming from the earth, remember, beasts are systems. And the second beast is acting like a false prophet. So it can be a system and act as a false prophet. It is the function that is the key thing. It's not the identity. It's not the the nature of it, right? Just because he's a prophet doesn't mean he's an individual. The second beast in Revelation that makes people worship the first beast is a system that acts like a false prophet, doing false signs and wonders. And we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to this, how this is happening in our time. It's happened and it's happening mostly in our time, but... You can have a prophet, it doesn't have to be an individual. Remember, individuals were used throughout Scripture to describe groups. Israel was an individual, but sometimes God would speak of Israel as an individual, but really be speaking about the group of people named Israel. So that's really important. So prophets doesn't mean that these are two individuals. And we know that they're resurrected after three and a half years, Then that's when Bible societies basically happened. The printing of Bibles resumed. There was a missionary movement, Second Great Awakening, which was a revival in the U.S. and all over the world. That was from around 1795 to 1835. All these things started happening again. And the Word of God was victorious, and it is victorious, and it will be victorious. But the point is that the two witnesses in chapter 11 of Revelation talks about the enduring Word of God throughout this persecuting, period of time, which is the little horn, which is the papacy, papal Rome, however you want to call it. This is the 1260 year period of time in history where the papacy was supreme authority and it did blasphemous things. It was drunk on the blood of the saints and it will come back in the future. But these two witnesses are not literal people. Again, open your spiritual eyes and pray to the Lord that he opens your spiritual eyes because people who read this literally Are completely lost. And if the people, if the same people who are building a temple right now in Jerusalem and who are doing all these false signs and wonders to try to fool you into believing their false eschatology for one reason or another, if they do something and pull off some sort of stunt with two individuals, just be aware. Be aware. I don't know if they will, but be aware because that's not what the Bible is talking about. This also follows a pattern of revealing the evil that's to come, but then revealing God's victory, ultimately. This is throughout Scripture. It reveals the problem, the the bad news, but then you get the good news. And that's pretty consistent. So the two witnesses are doing that as well. Now, we know that the two witnesses, the abomination, desolation, the daily, all the things we've talked about so far, point to the same thing. The twelve hundred sixty. Period of time where the Antichrist power has trotted the sanctuary, made it desolate, trotted the saints, killed a bunch of people, changed times and laws, all those things that we read. And what is that? That's the papacy, just like everything else we've talked about. All all roads indeed lead to Rome. And in the next episode, when we break this down with the French Revolution, with the art of war, so many fascinating things. I mean, the more you look into this, It really just blows your mind, and so much more that we get to be in these last days, where we get to see front row seats to the main event. All these things unfolding—it's—it's truly fascinating. I don't know any other word to say it. It's just fascinating, and I'm grateful to be alive, and I'm grateful to share these things with you. And I hope these things have been a blessing. I know some of these are longer episodes, but they have to be full of details so that you know the truth, and you were not deceived. I do not want you to be deceived. Because so many people are deceived and ultimately many people will be deceived because that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that this power will come back and many people will worship after it and wonder after it and take the mark, gladly taking the mark, believing that they're doing worship to God when in reality they're damning themselves. And so these are serious things, very serious, serious enough to worth In my opinion, to study. Again, don't get lost in it, but study so that you aren't deceived. Because we're talking about eternity here. These are very important things. And, of course, God will save who he's chosen to save before the foundation of the world was created. And those people will not be deceived. But ultimately, we have to encourage one another. We have to stand for the truth. And I hope that this has been a blessing for you. Next week, we're going to jump into more detail about the French Revolution, and the art of war. And you'll put that together with this episode and you'll see how it all just comes together so beautifully. After that, we'll look at uh, the beast in Daniel and then we'll look at the beast in Revelation 17, the woman riding the beast and just see exactly point by point, line by line, who that is, which you already know. You already know the answer and why. And I have tons of articles and books that we're going to go through that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt who the Antichrist power on the earth is. And so it behooves you to know so that you're ready for anything that comes down the road. Until then, I'll wish you a great day. I'll wish you prayer and strength in the Lord Jesus. I hope that these things have been a blessing for you. And take care. God bless.